due to the themes of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. Lock your doors, close the blinds, change your passwords. This is Secrets and Spies. Secrets and Spies is a podcast that dives into the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics, and intrigue. This podcast is produced and hosted by Chris Carr. On today's podcast, I'm joined by counterterrorism analyst Angie Gadd, and we are taking a look at the events of September the 11th and their legacy on counterterrorism. I hope you find this interesting, and thank you for listening. The opinions expressed by guests on Secrets and Spies do not necessarily represent those of the producers and sponsors of this podcast. Angie, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you back on. Just for the benefit of listeners who didn't listen to our previous conversation, which I think was nearly two years ago now, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your professional experience? Sure. I come from a Middle Eastern background. I I spent some time... Growing up, when I was, uh, I went to high school and, and college in in Egypt. Spent some time in the Middle East, um, and I got to kind of participate and and take part in the revolution in Egypt during the Arab Spring. While that happened, I was still a, a college yeah, student. Wow. Yeah, it was a fun time. Um, sadly, <laughs> uh, as you know, today not you know we went back to how it used to be, but that's another podcast. <laughs> and professionally, I I kind of I've always studied. And been interested in the Middle East, given my background. And I found myself pursuing international relations, poli-sci, and Middle Eastern studies in undergrad and in grad school, and sort of kind of studying intelligence as well in grad school. And I got into counterterrorism. People always ask me, how do you just get into it? But I interned at a government agency, and then I studied intelligence. And then that same agency reached back out a couple of years later, and they were hiring. So I kind of got into the counterterrorism field that way. And I've Loved it ever since I think I've been doing this for about seven years now. And I kind of I focused on the jihadist threat and far-right extremists. Um, yeah. I first started off focusing mostly on anti-government militia groups here in the United States and then that expanded more into kind of white supremacists, uh, white supremacists and neo-Nazis. After that, I spent some time um, teaching uh, at a couple of universities. I started teaching kind of intelligence, writing and briefing and, and homeland security and, and national security and then uh, after about a year or so, I switched back into the counterterrorism field and I'm in the private sector now doing the same thing, but focusing more so on the far right threat um, instead of jihadists. Yeah, excellent. We'll come back to that a bit later. Okay. Unfortunately, it's the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. And I say unfortunately, I remember on the day itself thinking, um, not that I was in New York, but I don't know, it felt like World War Three was about to kick off. So I kind of feel like 20 years later, I feel kind of pleased that I'm still here. So and that we all are. But uh, yeah, so it is the 9-11 anniversary. And thank you for joining me on the show today. And I wanted to just ask you some kind of questions about the um, the, yeah, the attacks and, and its sort of legacy, basically. So I suppose my, my first question is sort of how did 9-11 impact to you and do you have any memories of that day yeah so i might answer the question in reverse um i have very vivid memories i was about 11 at the time but i still have very i think everyone has a very vivid memory of that day um i was um in middle school i was in the still in the united states and uh i remember i remember what happened i remember they pulled us into a room they kind of dragged those old TV mm. screens uh, on the carts into the room, and we saw that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, 
and they were, uh, they showed us the news and, you know, I, you know, as an 11 year old, I don't understand, you know, this, this is a terrorist attack. I don't think people immediately right off the bat knew that either. Um, and then we got sent home early, went home and I continued seeing on the news. I really, nothing really at the time clicked for me. And then I think the next day or a couple days after we were at recess and a kid asked me, um, are you Muslim? And I said, yeah. Uh, and I was very shocked because I've never talked about religion before. I've never had that kind of conversation. Um, and I was like, yeah. And he's like, oh, so just like the terrorists. And I was like, what? I, had n- I right Again, I had nothing clicked. I had no idea what the context was. And I think I went home to my parents and talked to them and they explained to me kind of why the kid said that. And I think that was when that line had been drawn and that's where things yeah. started to, to change. And in terms of it impacting me, I, I, I want to say... Thankfully, I've never been exposed to anything too, too bad personally, but for my parents and my friends and other people kind of by proxy, I have seen how it's impacted them or, or how it's impacted my immediate community. I'm not visibly Muslim, so I get a pass. People don't look at me and I don't, I don't wear the hijab. People um, don't kind of see me and think, oh, she's Middle Eastern or she's Muslim. So I kind of slide through a lot and... Um, but it, it has made a lot of things harder for us and myself included um, in terms of kind of being a Muslim in America, whether that's praying in public, right? We go out and we're out all day, whether it's in New York or doing something and we have to pray the five prayers. And a lot of times my friends and my husband will find kind of a secluded area in, the, in a park or on the street somewhere and they pray. Um, and until today, I still... I give them, I, I sometimes I'm happy, I have to do it if there's a, a mosque, for instance, close by for us to pray in. But a lot of times it's difficult and I find it challenging for myself to do because I still, even 20 years later, I'm like, this is awkward. Even in New York City, which is a very diverse and accepting city for the most part, um, I find it difficult to pray in public because I know what people are thinking. I know it's alarming. And I'm not someone who kind of is easily scared off or... But it's it's still something that because I think I work in it and I've seen it for so long, I'm hesitant to do stuff like that. Um, I see how people stare at my my mom when she used to have the hijab on, my friends who wear the hijab, how even in New York, people see them and it's they stare, they whisper. I get very defensive. I get very upset when I see these things because it's been 20 years and I you would you know you would think by by now um, things would have changed, but definitely a lot better than it was 2001 but you still see people are still uncomfortable in our presence um my parents at the time when 9-11 happened it's crazy they were undocumented immigrants in the united states and until the week after 9-11 they got their green card and we got very very lucky we my dad's friends were getting deported right and left and thankfully my my, my mom and my dad didn't, um, we got to stay here. Um, and there was like kind of that fear. They were always afraid of being kind of sent back before 9-11, but it wasn't as urgent or immediate of a, of a concern until 9-11 happened. And we saw within that week kind of everything that, 
took place. That's terrible. All, right, all of what you've just said there, I mean, that's a terrible experience. I'm sorry that you sort of had to go through that. Do you remember we were, when our last conversation, we spoke a bit about how Islamic extremists have hijacked sort of words and symbols. And when you talk about the praying and stuff, because I, I remember some of the uh, news footage after 9-11 and suddenly see the sort of terrorist training camps. And, and it's it was an, um, kind of a combination of men with beards jumping around AK-47s and then moments of like pre- mass praying and things like that. It's it sort of like, and I think, you know, Bin Laden, he predicted that, that the sort of, how has he put it now, sort of the, um, you know, that there'll be a kind of clash of civilizations that the world sort of turn on each other. And it seemed to be that 9-11 sort of kicked up a lot of prejudices that felt like they were going away in the late 90s. Because for me, the late 90s felt a more positive time. And it felt like the world was starting to, I mean, you know, this is when the end of history was being bouted about as like, oh, this is the new thing, you know. And then obviously that day came and everything sort of... Uh, change those old prejudices came back so yeah it's it's terrible really um and i don't know where i'm going with that but (laughs) but you know what i mean it's just uh, the whole thing it's just awful really as you were saying earlier about your background so you studied islamist extremism and sort of practiced in counter-terrorism uh focusing on islamic extremists at the beginning of your career can you tell us some of the things that you learned during your time researching islamist inspired terrorism when i look at kind of my time researching the group specifically, I don't know what I can say that I haven't said before or hasn't said, been said before about mm-hmm. this, but the main point here is that they don't know it's them. Uh, I, the more you read into it, the more you read into their interpretations and their acts, they don't know the religion. And it's just a facade to either seek some kind of personal revenge they have or to overcome some personal experience that they face in their life and they're taking it out. And that, and that goes for, Anyone that joins any extremist group or any, whether it's a gang, whether it's a, a far-right group, I mean, it, it's it's very similar across the board. Um, there's kind of these underlying issues at the root of their reasoning, and they find some kind of theological explanation or a clash of civilizations or uh, the great replacement theory for white supremacists. There's always something that will help them justify their actions. Um, and I... At first, I think I thought that it was unique to Islam and unique to jihadists that they were kind of manipulating the religion. But then as I got older and kind of studied other extremist groups, I realized that this is very similar with other groups as well. I don't know if that really helps answer the question. It does. And it actually inspires another one, forgive me. So as you're saying that these terrorist groups or individuals, the religious aspect is a facade. Do ordinary Muslims sort of get that or are ordinary muslims just as confused about things as non-muslims you know members of the public who are looking at these sort of extremist groups i think for many of the people who are aware and believe that these groups exist and they are not kind of agents of the united states and israel yeah yes they are aware that you know when i talk to my father and other people they're very aware that they're distorting the religion and they're weaponizing it for whatever kind of agendas they have. Um, they don't they don't dig too deep into the weeds when it comes to like my father doesn't think too deeply about okay like what led them to this, but they just know that they're weaponizing the religion and they don't they think of it as not just kind of the jihadists but also other Muslim figures or preachers in Islam who have misused the religion and misinterpreted things for years. That has impacted kind of our community. So yes, they they look at people like Al Qaeda, they look at uh, and Bin Laden and Zawahiri, especially Bin Laden and Zawahiri, um, and they just think of them as very backwards. They shun kind of any kind of progress or civilization. They it, it's it's 
it's not uncommon from what you and I kind of, uh, uh, how we view these groups and these individuals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, that's good. Because um, one of the things I'm kind of mindful of is like from a general public point of view is a lot of people like in the UK, every time there's a terrorist attack and it turns out to be ISIS or Al Qaeda, people just paint this broad brush. And it and it's, it, it's, I remember having arguments with relatives and friends about sort of not painting everybody with the same brush. And it's, yeah, it's a difficult one, that one, because then I also have met Muslims who, like you were saying a little bit a while back, that believe it was all a great conspiracy and think yeah. that actually ISIS or Al Qaeda are really just secret agents of, um, you know, the, of Israel or uh, America, the CIA, and somehow the, you know, the CIA are all knowing, even chatting about the situation in Afghanistan, and um, and uh, it came up as a topic of, do you think this is all all part of the grand plan? <laughs> Um, you know, so I wonder, I, I suppose one of my questions is, do, do you think ordinary Muslims take groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda as a serious threat? Or is the conspiratorial view more popular, do you think? Mostly from my experience, with the exception of the people who have either lived in these regions or have been or have family members who have been victims of these groups, it's mostly conspiratorial. And, and I'm not generalizing here. I'm, I'm, this is I just want to make sure that uh, you're aware this is from my experience and my engagement with people, whether it's family members, relatives here in the United States or in Egypt and abroad. Um, there is a lot of conspiracy theories that are um, deep rooted um, in the in the Middle East among mm. certain Arab populations because of the history of distrust with the U.S. government and interventions mm. in the region, mm. whether it's in Iran in the 50s with Mossadegh or whether it's um, other engagements, they do not trust the United States, and they believe that these groups, Al-Qaeda and ISIS, uh, or 9-11 was an inside attack, and, and ISIS was a, a creation of the United States to to sow kind of and, and wreak havoc in the region and kind of destabilize these countries and an excuse for the United States to kind of come in and intervene, right? The oil, take oil, all that stuff, right? So um, there's definitely, that is a very prevalent viewpoint and something that's constantly, I constantly hear and constantly have to counter and sometimes hard to counter so you just gotta let it go but yeah it's 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 difficult um because they will point to some like instances in the past where oh the u.s did you know xyz in the in the 60s i'm like yeah okay and then you got you got to kind of um walk them through and i've had i've had conversations with family members and i'm to kind of debunk the whole 9-11 was an inside job and yeah i mean there's definitely again to answer your question yes there's there it's not there isn't just like one side i mean there's definitely some people who are aware that these groups are real, exist and have harmed people, especially people who know and have witnessed uh, or have family members have witnessed these uh, or been victims of these attacks. And there's other people who will maybe, for instance, like ISIS attacks in Egypt, for instance, they won't recognize that as ISIS, they'll recognize it as the Muslim Brotherhood so that they can continue, you know, with, with the regime and what the country has pushed the narrative of the Muslim Brotherhood as a terrorist organization. That's why we need to ban them and imprison them and et cetera. Whereas it would actually be an, an ISIS or what was formerly Amsar Bait al-Maqdis, an attack in Sinai, for instance, right? And I'm like, no, 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 those are two very separate groups. Um, and and the, the and the state in you know really kind of blurs that line to make it to justify kind of their repression of hmm. um, it's becoming increasingly popular today to paint a lot of sort of the post 9-11 counter terrorism policies as as racially motivated. Is that fair or is it more complicated than that? I think for the most part, it's fair. Um, there, There's some nuance here and I'll explain it in a bit. But mm. 
Um, it is fair to say that a lot of the post 9-11 policies were racially motivated and lacked an understanding of Islam in the various Arab and Muslim communities present in the United States and the West. But I'll speak for the United States since that's where my experience lays mostly. There have been inquiries into this matter and committees that have investigated this very topic. And the findings revealed that law enforcement engaged in racial profiling post 9-11 that violated the civil rights of Muslims, Arabs, and South Asian communities, immigrants and non-immigrants alike. Um, and our communities, I mean, without kind of even looking at these committees and inquiries, um, our community already knew that uh, we lived through it. We saw how our communities were impacted and how they still are today. Um, we complain and our complaints were mostly uh, take, either not taken seriously or they were sidelined, particularly when it comes uh, or when it came to hate crimes committed against members of our community. Mm. So I don't know what it's like in London, um, but most many people in the United States know that, particularly in the Northeast and in major metropolitan areas in the country, a lot of the cab drivers are South Asian or Arabs or Muslims. Um, and my father was a cabbie for about 10 to 15 years, and him and his friends were subjected to a lot of racism and hate crimes. And um, there were many more inc- incidents across the country outside of my kind of my father and his friends' personal experiences um, who sadly were exposed to this and this incident still happened today, obviously not at the same kind of volume or frequency as before. There's incidents where undocumented immigrants won't report hate crimes for fear of being deported. Um, yeah. And then, and that's very sad. And, and even before my parents, even before 9-11, my parents would just, everyone just kind of kept their head down, right? They don't want to raise any attention. Um, and there were others who were legal residents or citizens who don't report incidents because they distrust law enforcement and the government, given how they've seen the government react and target the community post 9-11. And the second part of this where it, you know, where you say kind of is it a little bit more complicated than that, it it does, it has gotten better, obviously, since 2001. I would say, and this is not a hard number, but like Say around 2011 or 2012, um, there was more rigor introduced in pursuing certain cases and individuals or terrorist attacks. And I'm not saying that racial profiling of Muslims hasn't happened since 2011 or that it stopped altogether. But I joined the counterterrorism community in January of 2015, and I became privy to a lot of how to how a lot of the anti-Muslim and racially motivated policies were not practiced or tolerated the way they once were in the years after 9-11. There was, even in kind of just looking at the local press briefings uh, for law enforcement, if there was a terrorist attack that was conducted or an attack that was conducted and the subject or the perpetrator was an, a brown individual, they wouldn't immediately say, this is a this is a jihadist case or this is a terrorism case. Um, there were a couple incidents that I covered, particularly where law enforcement did not say that right off the bat. And they waited and they investigated and either they said no, it, it was a brown person, but it was not a terrorist case. Or they waited until they were able to find motive and an affiliation to some kind of inspiration to ISIS or Al-Qaeda. And and that's where that nuance was. And I, I don't know if I was just very lucky with the agency I was working with that we exercised that level of rigor um, and we didn't jump to any conclusions just because it was someone who was brown or Muslim. But in my sense uh, uh, and, and my experience with other partner agencies and other law enforcement agencies, that was the practice now. You couldn't just jump and say, hey, just because this person's brown. That doesn't mean that it's not being done, but obviously it's not as acceptable as it was once before. 
right? Um, and I think that that's yeah, yeah. where that's changed. And and yes, post immediately post nine eleven, that was definitely the case. It wasn't fair, and there was a lot of racial profiling. But it's definitely gotten better today, and yeah, I hope it continues to get better. Yeah, well, I suppose one thing that doesn't help matters. Um, so if the police or law enforcement are becoming nuanced, the media don't seem to be as nuanced at times. Mm. There's still that early reporting of the suspect who happens to be of Middle Eastern uh, heritage or, or, or appearance. You'll get, you know, all those sort of people on various channels then giving us their opinion on Al-Qaeda and ISIS before we really know what actually happened. And I think that then also seems to lead to the perception that law enforcement think that way too, which I don't always believe to be the case. Yeah, I mean, that's an excellent point because um, I had a lot of people in my community, for instance, come to me like, oh, well, why is it when the brown guy commits an attack, it's he's a terrorist, but like when Dylan Roof did the attack in South Carolina, in Charleston, South Carolina, why didn't, and I was like, well, I was like, Mike, I was like, I covered that. And we can, and we, we have him designated as a terrorist, given his manifesto, given the target, given his affiliations and his interests and all, you know, all the above. Um, and I was like, we, the media may not classify him as a domestic terrorist, but we do. Um, and that's very spot on with what you just said. It's that what the media does and says is not reflective of what law enforcement is doing. Mm. And when I say law enforcement, I'm talking about a lot of the intel agencies and how they are assessing certain threats. So yeah, that's that's a very valid point. Um, the media, unfortunately, is always trying to just get that scoop immediately and try to um, identify the perpetrator, identify everything they know about the background history. And unfortunately, that it's you know it, it, we've dealt with this a lot. Even even myself, victim of this, is that it's hard to unlearn that first piece of information you come across. You have to then kind of reteach. And this is how conspiracy theories spread. And this is how people kind of latch on to these original uh, kind of uh, reports that come out from certain media sources. Yeah, yeah. Well, those, yeah, as you're saying that early reporting, and the thing is, is because all these organisations are in competition with each other, and they want yeah. that exclusive. And like in the UK, um, <laughs> like when there's something terrible happens, the BBC is great to start with, and then you kind of shift over to Sky, who are much less, they've got less lesser standards, but you kind of get better <laughs> visuals of what the hell's going on and then right. then they will declare it as something and then the BBC will take another half an hour to officially declare it. So I remember when um, when Gaddafi died um, mm -hmm. so Sky News declared his death at whatever time it was and it was quite, you know, soon and then the BBC took about an hour and they had a massive debate about um, <laughs> what will happen to Gaddafi you know, will he go to jail will he and, and you know, while Sky News is saying he was dead um, and it's right. because the BBC you know, supposedly have higher standards and a higher threshold before they say it is an established fact but um you know no it's quite interesting that sort of differing co coverage and that happens quite often actually that's actually i didn't know that about the bbc mm. that's a good parallel to draw between how intel agencies operate versus the media in the mm. united states mm. because whereas the media can go out and say oh blah 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 xyz happened um they can go back and be like, oh, by the way, there's here's a correction. Uh, we messed up. But if an Intel agency or an Intel shop uh, continuously makes these mistakes, we lose our credibility mm -hmm. as analysts. Uh, and uh, it's hard to gain for like every, if you mis make one mistake, you need about 10 or 15 more exposures with that policymaker, decision maker to get them to trust you again. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, it, it sounds like 
I guess Intel shops in the United States operate a little bit like the BBC <laughs> then since they apply a little bit more rigor before yeah. claiming that something is, which I, I actually, I, I very much respect that, that approach. Yeah, well, no, exactly. Because, and I think, you know, as we were saying about conspiracy theories and stuff, I think too many news organizations have taken liberties with the truth to get an exclusive. And now it's led to that. Because I hate to criticize the media because now I've, I've, um, I feel like I'm becoming a conspiracy theorist where you say the mainstream <laughs> media with quotation marks, you know. <laughs> oh, you don't believe yeah. the BBC, do you? you know, it's that kind of thing. <laughs> but, um, but it, uh, yeah, from what I've seen, I, I know people who work for many news organizations and, um, you know, it's definitely that, you know, there isn't a, a red telephone that rings up when something's happening, ordering people how right. to report stuff. It's just, uh, yeah. you know, some news organizations are just ruthless. Go out and get whatever you can, you know, because we want right. coverage, you know. It's, there's even a classic song from the 80s about um, about the news and dirty laundry. Who the hell's that song, Bob? But anyway, <laughs> but anyway, but yeah, so the definitely the media don't help matters with these things. We've yeah. sort of touched upon this, but um, what do you, what are, uh, what are Muslims that you've spoken with um, and you know, feel about the kind of the U.S. government response to Al Qaeda and ISIS. You know, what are their sort of feelings have been about that? It's yeah, you're right. So it kind of goes back to right the conspiracy theories, and it it goes back to distrust of the U.S. government and mm. them using right. So the the narrative goes, 9/11 was an inside job, so that the United States can invade mostly. Kind of from my background, they focus mostly on the invasion of Iraq versus Afghanistan. Um, so they they use that to invade Iraq so that they can destabilize the region. And, and I'm telling you this, I kind of have this whole conspiracy theory memorized. It was like, they're going to invade Iraq. And then after that, they're going to invade Syria. And then they're going to invade Iran. And it's crazy <laughs> because once this Arab uprisings happened in 2011, you started to see some countries become more destabilized and crumble. And, and that's what we saw with Syria. So my dad was like, oh my God, you see? Mm. Syria was, I told you Syria, mm. like, like 10 years ago, I told you Syria was after like, whatever. Like, and it was, and it was kind of like, it was kind of like that, like all oh, the conspiracy theories are like materializing. And this is all to assist Israel in destabilizing its neighboring countries so that Israel could be the main power and that we can bring down. Some, like, so that, that that's essentially how they view the government's response to the threat. And that's again, not everyone. Mostly it's kind of the, the older kind of immigrant my my immigrant parents or immigrants or people in the united people living in the region who are just tired of u.s intervention yeah and they think okay well they invaded iraq for their oil they wanted to get rid of saddam um and they use 9-11 as an excuse uh and that's basically i mean there's it's basically and, and a lot of a lot of conspiracy theories come from this main parent conspiracy theory and uh and then the isis one is basically like oh like the united states was already in iraq and then they created isis um to further destabilize Syria, because Syria was the only, and this is according to conspiracy theory, but Syria was the only kind of country, one of the only countries that after Saddam was like standing up to Israel. So they wanted to get rid of them too. And now Syria is kind of a destabilized country and America's kind of getting its way in the region. Was essentially how it's 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 viewed. Yeah, well, I I mean I've heard those theories too. I used to have yeah. um I used to do a late night directing class ten years ago, in fact, and um one of my uh one of my classmates was um a Turkish lady, and um you know as we got to know each other, it's always when you get to know someone, suddenly they think, okay, you know, I'm gonna sit down with Chris, and you know, <laughs> do you know you're being lied to and stuff, and and like right. and and it was this sort of. Yeah, again, it was exactly the plan that you've just described. Um, but she she was coming at it from a kind of weird 
kind of slight communist bent um because oh. i think so, so she was a bit older than me um and her family were very sympathetic to communism in turkey and stuff like that and there seemed to be mm -hmm. so there was definitely a communist element to this and i can't remember what it was now but um yeah yeah i've, I've definitely heard all these things and, and yeah. this idea about actually it's all about greater israel or something and israel's going to expand yeah. to the point where it becomes yep. the entire middle east or something and um what's the other one i've heard oh it's, yeah it's <laughs> loads but and, and it's all about oil and you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> what was your yeah 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 sorry you... no no it's fine i mean this is it, it i haven't i I didn't I haven't heard the communist twist so I'm very like that's very intriguing yeah, but yeah. I there's so many different variations mm. and the main one is usually the same mm. but yeah it's just um it's it's been 20 years of this and I'm it's very exhausting to continuously have to engage in these conversations and my observation of Middle Eastern culture and forgive the generalization but for many different people I spoke to from different regions conspiracy theories do seem to be very popular in Middle Eastern culture mm. and it's not just American yeah. or Israeli ones it's all sorts of conspiracy theories for all sorts of things you know and maybe and, and I, I've tried to wonder why that is and, and I think you would talk about it earlier I suppose because there are such um, repressive regimes in many Middle Eastern countries where where, you know, like, for example, some of my relatives are from Iraq and um, and so they they have all sorts of stories about, you know, sons being whisked off at night by the secret police never to be seen again. And then the mother goes to the police station. She goes three times and on the third time, the secret police tell her to never come back. Otherwise, you know, you're gone. Mm -hmm. So it might probably that and also, you know, so many, um, I don't know, it's been so much political change in the Middle East through its history, I guess it just breeds that kind of mindset, really, that nothing can be taken for granted. I don't know. It's an interesting one. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've thought about it. You raised some really good points I've, I've never considered, and I, I I have no idea why it's such a breeding ground for conspiracy theories and mm. why a lot of people in the region are so susceptible to it. I, it's something to read into that I, I've never thought. It's just I've been around it my whole life and i yeah yeah uh it, it's just i don't i don't know what the origins of it are or why we're more susceptible to it but and social media does not help at no, all no and I, and I think also <laughs> in the middle east the cold war didn't help either because certainly i know no. russia weaponized certain conspiracy theories as they do right. now to help you know their their geopolitical plans in the middle east and and make it difficult for american geopolitical plans in the middle east and definitely that's where i think the kind of the slight communist bent of that comes from and i wish i could remember what those theories were now but <laughs> but there we go <laughs> Well, with with some of those things in mind, I mean, what has been the response to your career in counterterrorism from friends and associates within the Muslim community? So, yeah, this one has been uh, pretty mixed. And the response has been one of two things, either, oh, my God, that's great. That's super badass. That's a really cool gig that you have. Tell me more. Um, and that's usually a pleasant surprise. Um, but it does happen more frequently now than it used to before. The other response, which is obviously not as pleasant, is that... Um, I'm kind of, uh, you know, betraying my community. Um, how could I work with the same government that is um, committing all these atrocities, not just in terms of violating civil rights of Muslims here in the United States, but attacking our home countries, um, the collateral damage, the innocent victims of certain U.S. strikes? How could you possibly be supportive of this um, and be um, a proud Muslim. And I think this has been something that I've uh, struggled with a lot. It's been something that has cut some pretty deep wounds um, over the years. And I, 
I always now, as much as I'm proud of what I do and as much as I love my job and, 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 and what I focus on, and I know how much as, as, as little recognition as we get as analysts, because we operate in, you know, our names are put out there. We aren't internally. Yes. But, you know, publicly, not really. And I, a lot of times I can't kind of tout my successes to my friends. As much as I'm proud of what I do, I've come to the point now where when someone asks me, what do you do? I get very uncomfortable. And I, I'm very, I'm a very open, very yeah. transparent person. I share everything I love to share. And so it's funny because when my husband and I are out there like, oh, like, what do you guys do? And I'm like, oh God. And I'm like, I let him answer first because I am just like building myself up to answer. But surprisingly, I've noticed it's gotten uh, it hasn't gotten it. It's not as bad as it used to be, but I still face a lot of like pushback and, and people kind of really just like, Oh, I'm not okay with this. I don't, I think your, your moral compass is off here. Um, and this is where I kind of kick into high gear and I start defending myself and defending what I do and explaining that they're like, Oh, like, so you are behind, you're the reason that Muslims are being killed overseas. And I'm, like, I'm not a targeting analyst. I'm <laughs> also, you know, and, and it, and it gets into this whole long discussion about it. And eventually I either can, you know, convince people that I'm doing a good deed and I'm mm. trying to possibly represent our community and our religion within the counterterrorism field to correct a lot of the wrongs and to provide nuance where there previously wasn't. Um, because of there's so much distrust between the Muslim community and the government, because of how the government responded post 9-11, um, that is why you see a lot of people either react the way they do when they find out what I do or they obviously don't condone these kind of jobs or they don't pursue these kind of jobs. I remember when I was in the government, I, I worked on something where it was like, you know, why aren't we getting more young Muslim professionals kind of joining the field? And I was like, well, <laughs> that's because X, Y, Z. And um, I think the former CIA director at one point in 2009 went to speak in Michigan, which has a heavy Muslim population to kind of address this topic. Yeah. And I was not received well. And um, I think it was Leon Panetta. And it, this was, it was like the, 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 the issue was that, you know, you built so much distrust, um, and you're not going to have these, these people at your disposal that you can leverage kind of our, our language skills, our background, our understanding and nuance of the religion and the communities to assist in countering the threat. So sadly, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's been a mixed reaction and I've, I've just had to navigate it and, um, it's usually there's usually it's usually positive and there's highs and and a lot of times there's lows but um you just deal with it it's yeah. it it's, it comes with the territory i've always sort of seen in a sense what you and others do is quite a noble profession because the way i view islamic extremist groups maybe i'm naive or wrong in this but they seem to thrive off chaos and and thrive off you know alienating muslims from the governments of the countries they're in um, and obviously, gov U.S. government and British government policy doesn't necessarily help that. <laughs> you know, if mm -hmm. if if the response, if you know, Afghanistan and Iraq hadn't happened after nine eleven, had America taken a different approach, and there wasn't so much sort of blood on the hands of U.S. foreign policy, which is, and I'll put foreign policy in its own its own little place because counterterrorism policy and foreign policy are separate things but people obviously mm -hmm. may think it's all one amalgamated thing mm -hmm. um so you know if 9 11 
and the response to the to it and the foreign policy response to it being different, I wonder. And it's, you know, it's difficult to speculate, but I wonder if um, Muslims might feel differently about what you do today because you're tackling. You seem to be tackling people who are who are trying to make the religion a bad thing. You know. Yeah, I, I don't. I, I wonder the same, and I I honestly think the issues that the Muslim community and Arabs and South Asians faced in the United States post 9/11. I think the broader issue was how the U.S. responded to 9/11 in these other countries and how it led to another intervention. Those military interventions are, in my opinion, what, I mean, that's how Anwar al-Laki was yeah. radicalized, right? I mean, yeah. he was a regular preacher and very charismatic, still was after becoming an Al-Qaeda member. Um, it was the U.S. invasion that really kind of, that was his, that was his, the moment where he was like, this isn't okay. These innocent people dying are okay. And I think that's what it is because that's what happens with friends of mine overseas where the issue isn't all like how are Muslims mistreated in the United States. I don't really think about that. They think about how the U.S. has handled itself internationally. Mm. And I agree. I think if, if if it had been handled differently, maybe it would have been very different in terms of how people respond when they found out what I do for a living. But that's kind of like a different reality that doesn't exist. Yeah. But this has got a big question. Do you think the threat of Islamist-inspired terrorism was overblown post 9-11? Or at least the reaction to that threat? Yeah, I think that's a better way of putting it. The reaction to the threat. Mm. Yeah, I think in the sense that all Muslims and Muslim communities in the West became the target of mass surveillance and racial profiling mm, mm. over the acts of a handful of fringe extremists. Absolutely, it was overblown. Again, I feel like a broken record, but I think more rigor should have been applied to understanding Islam, Muslims, and the very, very small percentage and subset of Muslims that are radical or extremists to better scope and limit our response post 9 11. Um, I think, I think we just talked about this, but the military interventions in Afghanistan and Iraq inevitably led to so much collateral damage, lots of innocent people dying, thousands, not millions. I don't I'm, I have been displaced yeah. uh, internally, and there's been tons of refugees, and a lot of people have become victims of U.S. counterterrorism strikes that, in essence, again, not to sound cliche, but have created more enemies for the United States than it has deterred. Yeah. And our reaction post-9-11 was emotional, and rightfully so, the Attacks on 11 were not something that it was, it was extremely tragic. And the amount of people that died was horrific. And I, I just don't think our response was measured or leveled enough in hindsight mm. when you look at it, because it caused more problems, not only for us um, in how we deal with this threat, it caused more problems for the, the, the citizens of the countries that we invaded. And that in... <laughs> It, unfortunately, it's a cycle where it ended up impacting us again, right? So it's unfortunate, yeah. So I, 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 I do think that our reaction to the threat was definitely overblown, and and and, and it's hard to say that. And, and I, I, I know nine eleven is not something easy to talk about mm. and say, hey, we mm. overreacted because it, it, it wasn't. It is a big deal, and it, but kind of in hindsight and looking twenty years later and and looking at everything that's happened since, even with the withdrawal. The U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, it's a lot of people are questioning, did we do the right thing? Did we withdraw properly? Should we have stayed? Should we have been there for that long? There are answers to all those questions, aren't there? They're, they're, right. you know, there's, there's a yes to all of those and a no to all of those. Right. Too. That's the one thing I've found, especially talking to people. Right. Yeah, it's difficult. But I think the one thing the withdrawal maybe has potentially exposed is, um, and this is me saying it's not you, but it's sort of like <laughs> I, the impression I get is that the military on the ground really didn't understand Afghanistan at all. 
Um, and, I, and I think that 20 years later, and that was the result of 20 years of being in, in Afghanistan, and then, you know, the government collapses and the army run away, which is being maybe a little bit unfair to some of the army, but I, and I don't kind of half blame them if I had to, you know, if the Taliban were coming on my door, I think I'd run away too. But, um, <laughs> you know, I just don't think, I just think, you know, I was talking to Frank Snepp, who's a former CIA officer who was in Vietnam and stuff. And, and he, he his experiences in Vietnam, the army were I don't know if necessarily lying, but they were sort of falsifying the or giving a false impression of progress. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that may be what Afghanistan's exposed that, you know, has happened again. Less progress being made than people thought, um, you know, and it's, it's tragic because now you do have... Um, so we're going off a tangent, but you do yeah. have a kind of generation of people who've kind of grown up in a slightly different Afghanistan. There's a little, yeah. not not hugely westernized, but a little bit. There's a few more freedoms than there were before, and it's all been just taken away from them. And I just find yeah. that horrific. I really do. It's very sad. Just one last, because uh, I feel like, yeah, we've sort of really gone full on the Islamist side, mm -hmm. but one last Islamist question, I suppose. Do you think Islamist-inspired terrorism is as great a threat to the United States and the West today as it was perceived 20 years ago? Um, in terms of the facts on the ground, I... I do not think that the threat from jihadists is, is as great of a threat to the United States mm. as it was 20 years ago. We've increased our counterterrorism measures and capabilities in the United States and other Western countries. The intent versus the capability of a lot of these extremists um, and jihadist groups, right? The benchmark has always been we want to do another 9 11, and they haven't been able to. The closest they've gotten was the Paris, the November 15, November 2015 Paris attacks. But in terms of actually conducted, conducting large scale coordinated attacks from the core groups, not inspired actors um, who conduct kind of smaller attacks. Um, I don't think they possess those capabilities currently. The, the landscape has changed, right? The movement is today compared to 20 years ago, it's far more decentralized and it's, it's more focused on local issues and conflicts and capitalizing on local grievances, local trying to take over local resources. Um, and that has been a result of expansion of these groups and them relying on their affiliates. Um, a lot of it has also come down to infighting between the two major jihadist models and groups, right? ISIS and Al Qaeda. Um, there's been a lot of uh, tension there and that's led to them fighting each other on the ground in certain areas in Africa and the Middle East mm. um, and in Asia, Southeast Asia. And, um, the threat now is mostly focused or is mostly concentrated in Africa and Afghanistan. And I think the threat for us here in the United States is mostly coming from the far right extremists. Um, and the threat is domestic. I, I definitely don't think jihadists have the same capability as they did back then. And I, even back then, I don't think they could have conducted another nine 11. Yeah. As far as I've seen, I think nine 11 was a, you know, it was a very, bold move it was the embassy mm -hmm. bombings and it was the uss coal and then it was 9-11 the black banners by ali sufal i'm basing this on but um mm. you know that was like the defining moment for al-qaeda it was because they weren't being taken seriously and then that happened right. and then you know mm -hmm. they became the kind of dominant franchise for that mm -hmm. for that kind of uh, terrorism yeah. really and they haven't been able to really meet that level of success ever since um with kind of like an aging leadership, mm. old guard, the death of bin Laden and Aulaki, who were both very charismatic leaders. You have a aging population now of these, especially with Al Qaeda. We don't even know if Zawahri's right. Everyone's saying he's dead, um, and he wasn't as charismatic, right? So it's it's an issue with leadership. Yes, these groups are made to withstand leadership losses, right? But mm. um, they lack leaders like bin Laden, Zawahri, and even Baghdadi, who 
kind of energize the movement and, and made people want to kind of join and, and um, conduct attacks on their behalf. And, and you just don't, it, it's just a different generation now uh, of, of, of leaders and, and the movement's just shifted so much and changed over the past 20 years. You mentioned that you're now seeing the rise of the far right as the, one of the greater threats to the United States these days. And and also, you know, we've talked in the past about this sort of idea of a clash of civilizations, which I think is sort of given oxygen to the far right in the last 20 years, which they didn't have before, and also the connectivity with social media and so on. Can you talk just a little bit about sort of what you've learned about these sort of far right groups, what the situation is today, and you know, just generally what your thoughts are on this rising threat? So... It's interesting because especially after kind of the January 6th capital raid happened, a lot of people are like, oh, you know, what is this emergent threat? And it's um, it's definitely not emergent. It's been around for mm. a while and mm. um, it just hasn't been taken seriously. People haven't focused on it as much because there was obviously the big shiny object was jihadists and Al-Qaeda and ISIS. Um, so we really had much, very much neglected the domestic threat from far right and um they've just been able to operate and continue to grow and gain momentum here in the United States because they've been for the most part left to kind of their own devices. I mean, not entirely, but for the most part, they've had much more freedom and uh, flexibility to, to maneuver. And the, when you kind of talk about the, the clash of civilizations narrative, it's, it's, it's funny because I, I draw, I always, always run a parallel uh, once I tied that parallel, I drew, started drawing a parallel between the far right and jihadists. And the clash of civilizations com- narrative is just one component of that. They, it's funny, they agree with jihadists that there is this clash of civilizations that everyone kind of needs to separate and live in their own, whether it's kind of in their own caliphate or in a white ethnic state. Uh, they agree with jihadists that, you know, they reject liberal Western ideals. Uh, they reject feminism and LGBTQ rights and all that stuff. It's very similar. Even with the Taliban's takeover of Afghanistan, right? I've seen a lot of members of far-right communities, far-right extremist communities applauding what Taliban did and celebrating it and expressing their desire to have their own territory Hmm. for white people Hmm. and to kick out foreign influences like Taliban did with the U.S. forces. So, I mean, I've written about this in the past. Many in the far-right admire and share tactics that are used by jihadists, um, whether that's the the apocalyptic element that ISIS was so good at kind of um, coining. You have neo-Nazi accelerationist groups that want to accelerate the collapse of society to rebuild a white ethnicity in its place. This has been going on for so long and it's crazy how sometimes my two worlds come together and I see a far-right extremist sharing an Al-Qaeda manual and I'm like, what's going on here? And yeah, I mean, the threat is it's getting more attention now in the media. It's getting a lot more coverage, um, but it's definitely been around. I mean, you can go back to Timothy McVeigh. You can go back all the way to the 1800s with the KKK. It's been around for a very long time. I think once it started impacting and leading to the raid on a U.S. Capitol building in the middle of an election, that's when it be- started to become more real. And people kind of started to focus on the, on the far right. Not that there have been agencies, government agencies have been focusing on the far right for many years before January 6th, 2021. Yeah. Question, actually, back to our media point earlier. Like, yeah. again, the media seem very reluctant to label clearly terrorist incidents and the perpetrators have to be white and they seem to be hesitant to use the terrorist label um, and they tend to find other labels. Would you say that's the same with law enforcement or is it a bit like what we were saying earlier about how law enforcement are in one place and the media is somewhere completely different? From my my experience, 
yes, in, internally in, in any Intel shop and in the Intel shops I've worked at, yes, we label them internally as terrorists. Mm. Um, if they check off all the boxes and they meet their promises, they are terrorists. But unfortunately, the media doesn't approach it the same way. Um, and it's, it's sad because this is where a lot of the conspiracy theories form among the Middle Eastern community, Muslim Middle Eastern communities is that how come we're getting labeled as such, but a white guy does X, Y, Z and they're not labeled as such. Um, and that's where a lot of that comes. And I see this argument come up all the time and time again. And again, I, I just make the argument that I classify them. We classify them mm. as domestic terrorists. I mean, people like Dylan Roof, people who've, anyone who's committed an attack to further political or social agenda and they have a manifesto and they have a specific motive that that checks off the box like it would for someone who's jihadist. So yeah, sadly the, the media is not a representation or a reflection of how certain law enforcement uh, government agencies classify uh, these threats. So yeah, but at least the perception, doesn't it, that they do. <laughs> right, and that doesn't help the case at all, I know. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Well, have there been any sort of positive developments in counterterrorism that give you or can give us any hope in the, in the sort of threats or responses to the threats that we're facing today? I mean, not to kind of beat this with a dead horse, but it, mm. it, it, I, having started working far in 2015, along with ISIS, I have seen so much more progress in covering um, and taking that threat more seriously and having people come and ask us and actually um, um, spend the time, hey, I need you to look into the threats from the far right, where as before we'd be inundated with what is the threat from jihadists. I mean, I rarely get, as in my experience my, as an analyst, I get asked more about the fight than I do about jihadists, which is showing how people are realizing, hey, this is a threat. This isn't positive, but <laughs> but um the policy unfortunately um has been has is more reactive than it is proactive. And I, I would love for it to be more proactive is in kind of looking at these threats where it was like, hey, we've been warning about these guys. We warned we warned about January sixth in December or before it ever happened, and we knew there was something that was going to to go down. And it's just, unfortunately, we get inundated with these requests and calls after the fact. And I just wish it was. Yeah. Well, and sadly, that's never changed, is it? Because even no. the pre 9-11 world suffered from that, didn't it? You yes. Know? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and I just, I think it's, I think this issue being reactive versus proactive is not just exclusive to counterterrorism, by the way. I think this is a bigger, a broader issue, um, whether it's natural disasters or anything, right? We always kind of uh, try to fix it after the fact. So. Yeah, I think I said I don't know. It's an interesting one because I think because there's so many things that happen that feel like they're really obvious, but a lot of people just don't see it, and then it does happen, right. and then we have a debate about it, and then we do something about it, and it's it's an interesting one, and I certainly um. And I don't think it's exclusive to government bureaucracies, this mindset, but I think certainly government bureaucracies do suffer from it in the sense of, you know, I guess because people, their you know, careers are on the line. If you're the one who suggests we've got to divert 50 million into, right. I don't know, the Italian separatist threat, and it turns <laughs> out that they don't even exist, you know? Right. <laughs> it's on you. It's your head. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? So it's, I can understand some of that caution, but yeah, no, right. it's, it's, yeah, yeah, it's a complex question that I suppose. Um, <laughs> but how to fix that? But um, well, are, is there anything else you'd like to add before we sort of wrap up today? I think, especially in this day and age, 
with how divided we've become, whether it's just the United States or globally. I mean, I've seen this divide kind of taking place more at an international level as well. Mm. Um, a lot of us are just guilty, myself included, of falling victim to tribalism, groupthink, bias, sticking to our clan, overreacting to situations that we haven't been faced with before, unprecedented events like COVID. Um, and it's it's just led to I've I've just I don't know if this is just in my time this is the first time it's happened in my lifetime, yeah. but I've I have never kind of faced a situation where um, people in society have been this divided and I don't know what the solution is, but I just I think it's just to have compassion for and empathy for your fellow human on earth. It's it's I know this sounds super cliche and very naive, but it's I, I it's just this, the amount of stuff I see on a daily basis and the amount of hate and visceral reaction and the conspiracy theories, it's it's so hard to I mean, I just wish we could just pull out of that for mm. a little bit and uh, I don't know, just learn to have more love and compassion for one another. It's just I think my world is just so full of hate and yeah. terrorism all day that I'm kind of like I wish we could just love each other a little bit more, but it's um I understand that it's just a subset of what kind of society mm. is going through. And I'm unfortunately just exposed to a lot of the negative yeah. uh, chatter all day. Yeah, no, definitely. Well, thank you for the work that you do do. So, uh, you know, of course. it can't be easy. So, uh, yeah. But um, on one final note, I suppose this, um, somebody once said, and I know I've said it before, but it wasn't me who coined this, but, um, <laughs> you know, it's our humanity that got us into this and it'll be our humanity that will get us out of it. That's a much better way of saying what I just said. <laughs> I'm sure it's so, from yes. Star Trek. I think it might be from Star Trek, but... <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what I wanted to say. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me today. Where can, um, if you want to be connected with, where can listeners connect with you? I'm on Twitter. It's Angie's List and uh, List is spelled with a Y. So it's A-N-G-I-E-S-L-Y-S-T. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for listening. This is Secrets and Spies. 